Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. All right, here we go. What you think about. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled you're joining us today. We are going to have a really interesting conversation about how dementia really affects families and the toll that it can take. Uh, But before I introduce you to our guests, I always like to do a couple of shout-outs. So one is to the Mark Arneson Band. Uh, They allow us to use their song, Clarion Call, and I just think it's really uplifting. You can download that on any of your favorite music platforms if you like. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people. And um, and that means people all over the world, from those diagnosed to uh, their family and friends, to business professionals, authors, movie directors, researchers, you name it. Everyone is welcomed on Alzheimer Speaks Radio. I feel it's essential that we are inclusive. I don't think we can make sustainable change if we're not. And and I know that from the bottom of my heart because my mom lived with this disease for 30 years and Alzheimer's Speaks is here to try to make a big impact in terms of connecting people to services, products, tools, and stories to help them on their own personal road or business uh, profession. Now, it is a live show today, so you can call in at 323-870-4602. That's 323 323- Eight seven zero four six zero two. I do want to shout out to both um, Arthur's uh, Senior Care. They allow us to provide Arthur's Memory Cafe twice a month, the second and fourth Wednesday, and we're doing that virtual. Anyone can attend. And also Brookdale North Oaks. We typically do a Caregiver Connect program that offers respite for uh, people living with dementia the last Wednesday of each month. We actually have had to go virtual the last couple just due to COVID. And then also I want to um, give a shout out for the city of Winona and their dementia-friendly community down there. We're going to be doing a a movie screening of um, A Timeless Love and a talkback. We're going to do two shows, April 7th and the 8th, and that is open to the public and free. You can find more information on all of those by just going to alzheimerspeaks.com on our um, homepage. We are going to go ahead and hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and then we'll be right back to introduce our guest today. I love the Foot Bar Walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. 
I love the adaptive uh, equipment in Caregiver Corner. They have tons of videos, and they really explain how to use uh, various types of equipment. I think it will be really enlightening. So check them out while you're checking out the the dementia or um, the foot bar walker. I also forgot to mention dementia map. You need to check that out. Uh, it is a website we have built that is totally free. You don't have to sign into it. And we have over 150 different categories you can search. Uh, we are growing it globally. There's a calendar of events, great blog, a glossary, and so much more. So go to dementia map dot com as well. Now let's get to our guest today. I am really excited to be talking with Lisa Ronke. She is from Watertown, South Dakota. She worked as a sales and marketing uh, professional, an event planner, and most recently a project manager for a paralegal uh, firm that was local there. And uh, she's she's now retired. Needless to say, given that skill set, she's a good organizer. But when her husband, Ed, was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's at the age of 51, Lisa found out dementia wasn't something you could organize once and put in a file or stuff in a drawer. Dementia, as we know, has a mind of its own. And since Ed's diagnosis, he lived six and a half years and he passed away at the early age of, of uh, 57, um, just this past fall. Lisa is going to share with us today some of her insights in terms of how dementia can be life-altering and, and dream-shattering to a family, a friend, um, et cetera. So, uh, Lisa, I, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I don't think the general population realizes the impact that dementia has on people. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I think stories are the most powerful way to get a message across. And so uh, first I'm going to just start with, I, I normally ask everybody, you know, have you been touched by dementia? Well, needless to say you have. Um, but I want you to give us a little more background and then also let us know, was there a history of this within the family? Um, well, Lori, our story definitely is quite unique. Um, Ed was at the top of his game professionally and has a very amiable personality. And um, to have this kind of diagnosis was, you know, absolutely something nobody can ever prepare for. Um, what I thought was also interesting, well, if you touch back on your other part about family history, there is no known family history. So this, of course, we thought was, oh, potentially a misdiagnosis. So we reached out to care providers, medical professionals in multiple states to get, you know, to get make sure that this was exactly what we were dealing with. And, of course, you know, the story just unfolds from there. So I would say, um, you know, our people were noticing things different with him, and I was too, but... You have to realize we um, have recently celebrated our 32nd wedding anniversary. So when you're together with somebody that long, you're used to completing their sentences or helping them tell a story and things like that. So it got to be kind of second nature. But looking back, those were signs that that um, were presenting the disease to us that we didn't really understand. Mm-hmm. What type of work did your husband do? Um, he worked in the animal nutrition industry for a large um, company, Prina Mills Land O'Lakes, and so he worked with large cattle producers and elevators. So he had a, quite a wide network of um, repeat customers as well as, you know, looking for new customers, and he supervised people as well. So when it became a huge change in his professionalism and his ability to do his, his work that become, you know, that was of concern to his employer as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is something that, it, you know, you just don't know <laughs> because things change subtly and when people are under stress and when they're busy and, and stuff, uh, we all get a little discombobbled. And so uh, 
it, it can be tough. And, and people work really hard at hiding those changes as well. Anyways, that's what I found with, with my own experience with my, with my mother, um, which is understandable. Um, for you, um, what was the first thing that you really noticed in terms of, of changes in Ed? Well, I did notice things in his in his work where um, he'd say, oh, help me attach this PDF to an email. I don't know how to do that. And it was something that he had turned in sales reports and done things before. And I thought, well, this is unusual. Maybe he's just having an, an odd day or something. I said, well, this is the way I do it. And I'd show him and, and you know, we'd go on with our day and thing like that, whatever. Um, his one of his supervisors, um, she was a female, and her mom actually had Lewy body dementia. And she was the one that actually noticed it more with his work. And she was the one that brought it to the attention, you know, to have a meeting and, and things like that. So um, professionally, I think that was when I had more of a reality check. And then I kind of did the math backwards in my head, like, oh, you know, I have been noticing things. But like I mentioned earlier, I didn't really notice it were signs. But some of the things that I did notice about Ed personally is um, he used to be, he used to have just a huge repertoire of jokes. And he could tell animated jokes with accents and facial expressions. And he could no longer remember those jokes or remember how they were told or even remember who he even told them to. And so that was something I, I noticed, you know, looking back. Um, and then um, 2015 is when he was diagnosed, in July of 2015. But Memorial Day weekend of 2015 was when I first had an absolute concrete example of something I can share. Uh, we had, normally we had done a lot of home improvement projects together, um, you know, light carpentry, hanging sheetrock, just whatever to do home improvement, painting, whatever. And we built a lot of things, including a loving marriage. And we were working on a project Memorial Day weekend of 2015. And he was just very confused about measuring and using a saw and just holding up even parts of this project that we were working on. And I thought, my gosh, it's not even very hot out. It's like 11 o'clock in the morning. He hasn't had that beer yet. You know, you just start thinking, oh, what is going on here? And mm -hmm. so I thought, let's just take a little break. And I, I really didn't think much about it until later. Um, then... The last weekend in June um, of 2016, we had tickets to go to the Antiques Roadshow in Omaha, which for about four hours from there. And so there we go off to this little fun little getaway weekend for the two of us, and we're going to go to a national TV show, and we thought that'd be super fun. And um, driving down there, he got very confused, and there was a couple construction zones, and it was just too much information for him to process. And I became concerned about that as well because this was a man that had driven, you know, sometimes 800 miles a week for work over, you know, for his territory. Um, and to have him being confused while driving, that I kind of like made a little me mental check note of that as well. And even when we were at the venue, it was very overstimulating with the lights and the banners and the sounds and just a lot of activity going on, which he was having difficulty processing, which this is something that was, un this was very unusual for him to have this type of issue. So those were some first things. And then additionally, that same weekend in June, we came back home on that Saturday and um, went to church that Sunday morning. And we live about 10 minutes from our church. And I was driving. And in that 10-minute drive from our church to come home, we had the same exact conversation four times. And that's when all the bells and whistles went off, like something is wrong. And, you know, you're wondering, you know, is this a brain tumor? Is this, what you know, what is going on? Is he dehydrated? You know, you don't even know what, but it was just such a concrete example. And I know that he couldn't use the excuse or coping mechanism um, of, oh, I was distracted or, oh, the TV was on oh, I wasn't listening, because those had been excuses that he used before. And mm -hmm. uh, so I knew something that was very um, unusual that 
we needed to further investigate. And I did finally um, call his golfing partner then that night. I went and hid in the bathroom and turned on the fan so he couldn't hear me talking to him. And I called his golfing partner and I asked if he had noticed anything. And of course he did. And then the story started unraveling and they're like, we thought you knew. And so even though, you know, you're immersed in it, I was just too close to it to even realize what exactly, or like you said, categorize or put it in a box or a file or organize it because there was nothing to organize. So then we went to my great care doctor July 1st, and then that's when um, we, you know, did the mental exam. And, you know, to have your husband sitting there at 51 years of age at the height of his career, physically fit, um, and, you know, to have this kind of diagnosis was just devastating. Oh, yeah. I, you know, as you were explaining things, I have to tell you, I'm really impressed with how you handled things. So in terms of like with the PDF, well, this is how I do it instead of getting really frazzled and upset and, um, you know, really, really processing it and um, and answering his questions in a respectful, in a respectful manner. That's not always easy to do. Um, I know that firsthand. Now, did, you know, there were a few others that said, oh, we thought you knew. Do you find that that's common? Because I guess I have, where people just assume that you know, or they totally deny anything's going on. There's doesn't seem like there's a lot of middle ground, <laughs> anyways, in the people that that I interacted with with my mom. How about you guys? Um, that's correct. Um, I did notice, you know, some people they were totally like in shock, like, "Are you kidding me?" You know, and we thought, you know, we thought he just maybe had an extra cocktail that night at the party or something, you know, because we would entertain socially all the time, and. Um, Sometimes he was just a little off, and people just thought, oh, whatever, it's, you know, it's a Friday or whatever. And then you get to thinking about back in time, and, you know, I wanted to be so guarded and respectful of his um, feelings and, you know, to respect his dignity. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I should, we're just going to keep the story to ourselves. And you can't because that's when rumors start flying and people start, you know, making their own assumptions. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to take control of this story and I'm going to be truthful and open and honest with people and let them know what is happening to, to Ed and to us and the ripple effect it's having on our, on our entire lives. How was that received when you, when you talked openly about that? Well, um, and what kind of started that is we actually did come out of church one Sunday and, you know, you're kind of feeling a little renewed and, and uh, we're out in the parking lot and one of his uh, coworkers uh, from, you know, a different, you know, town about 10, 15 minutes away came up to us and said, no, and Ed is, Ed, my husband is standing like right beside me in the parking lot. And this person actually said, well, we heard Ed had a brain tumor. Is that true? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, they're talking about it in surgery. He's like, right here. He's right here. And, you know, Ed was confused. And, of course, I was upset and, and like, no, no, it's something else. And we're working at that point. Let people know because um, this isn't anything he brought on himself. It's something that um, happened to him. And he was chosen, and we were chosen to go through this, take this journey. Um, mm-hmm. Some people... I remember we had a group of friends over, and I, and I think some of them are listening. You know who you are. Um, they We had them over for uh, a Sunday evening taco dinner, and then I'll, and the football game was on, and then I turned the game off, and I said, we have to tell you something. And it was pretty much split 50-50 as far as some knew something was up and some just were unbelievable. They just couldn't believe it at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that's very common. I found that even with my folks, friends, even the ones that saw symptoms, they didn't want to believe it because it was too close to them. And what if what if that could happen to them? And I was I was really shocked how, you know, how lifelong friends. I mean, friends that my mom had since elementary school kind of pulled away because they just were so uncomfortable with it. And and they were really, I think, scared for themselves. 
in terms of, well, if, if this could happen to her, it could happen to me. And what was interesting is a lot of people in their circle ended up dealing with dementia, um, either themselves or a spouse, which was just, I found fascinating. And, um, and even then, there was a lot of pushback in terms of, no, that's not what this is. That's not what this is. Uh, they were, they were, I mean, they were so frightened, so frightened. Um, and it was right, just sad. But, but the, the social part is so important. Um, you know, it, it just changed our lives, you know, professionally, socially, financially. Um, you know, socially, I, I try – I, I'm, I'm used to hosting events at our house and, and volunteering added myself to, um, you know, do community work and things like that. And, and so we were used to being out in the public. And I tried to keep him doing that as well because it's important to keep the brain stimulated and to keep him, you know, socially involved as much as possible. And, you know, and our gatherings became smaller and smaller because the people with dementia, like my husband had early Alzheimer's, it's very difficult for them to process massive amounts of information. Um, you know, loud animation, um, the, too many lights and sounds and things like that. It's just, it's just too much for them to process. So we, our, our social circle got smaller and smaller. But you know, and people afterwards sometimes would say, "Oh, we had this such and such gathering, but we didn't know if you'd want to come or not." And I'm like, "Well." I wish you would have asked because, yes, we would have liked to come, or if Ed was having a good day, we would come, or if he's not having a good day, and that's you know, something I couldn't really rely on. But back to your other point about other people kind of also being in denial is the fact that um, they don't know how to, you know, treat this. You know, if someone has a, a broken bone or a sickness or something like that, you can bring them some food, but, but this disease is not normal. It's not one of those bring over a casserole type diseases, it's, it's not going to get better. And, you know, no pan of brownies or no fat or ham sandwiches is going to provide a quick fix to this issue that Ed, Ed was having. Yeah, definitely. Um, I totally agree with you on that. And, and I agree too, where people make those assumptions, well, we just, we won't ask, we won't offer. And, and that can be crushing too, because they don't understand how small somebody's world can get when dealing with this. You know, when you're you're dealing with so many different dynamics, and like you said, when that window is open, you want to take advantage of it. You want to get together with your friends. Um, you know, if it if it all pans out, you you don't want someone shutting the door before you even know is it a possibility or not. Um, for you. Uh, I think that that's a real important lesson for the public to, to understand. Um, now, you had mentioned well, about, oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and I respect that, you know, to feel uncomfortable around him because his new normal was different. He had different abilities than he had before. And I respect that, you know, they wanted to remember him the way they remembered him, you know, the joke telling you know, command the audience in the room and, and be entertaining and amiable and all that. And he still was very amiable even to the end, but he just didn't have those same skills. And I understand that people want to keep that, you know, the same of them and, and, and not be uncomfortable around him. Mm-hmm. Yep. But I think, you know, what people don't understand is one of the ways you you learn to not be uncomfortable is to be around and and learn more details of what's happening and how you can help, um, how, you know, and, and personally how you can maybe fend it off for yourself, you know, or if if you're worried this could be happening to you. And that's what I found a lot of. Um, even in my circle of friends today, I get people asking me all the time, well, you know, I run up the steps to my bedroom and I don't remember what I was, what I was going to get. And so right away they think dementia because it's in the news more often. And, um, and I always ask them, well, what did you have on your mind when you were running up the steps? You know, because it, yeah, it could be, (laughs) but it could be you are multitasking and that what you were running up for really wasn't a priority because you were thinking about, organizing a party or people you had to call or laundry you had to do or or whatever, or all of the above, 
you know, and then, you know, again, did you remember it later? Um, and they're like, oh, yeah, then I, then I got it. And I said, did, you know, did it affect your life because you didn't get it? Well, no. I said, well, then you're probably okay. But, you know, you want to be cognitive of those things. But, again, being around I guess because my mom lived with the disease for 30 years and it taught me so many beautiful lessons about being a good human. I always thought I was one, but I think she taught me how to be a better, um, a better person and engage in different ways. And really, um, and, and I'd love to know if this was for you too, but you know, I, I found myself looking for the joy in in all the different places you know that I probably overlooked before um but I needed to still have that in my life and and so did she and so I I I looked at life really differently because of this experience and to me that was a huge blessing uh-huh. uh, how did that work for you I mean I know it doesn't happen right away for sure you know when you're jumping into all of this well um you do celebrate the small things. Um, I kind of liken it to when our, our kids were little and, oh, my gosh, you know, tied their shoe today for the first time. And it's, it's going backwards in the time, like, oh, good, Ed can still tie his shoe today. Well, then there was a time where he couldn't, and we had to, you know, switch to slip-on shoes. And you just you just learn to do different priorities. What is it so important? No, this may isn't as important as I thought it would have been two years ago, so we're just going to go with it. But the other priorities that I thought were very important, and I still do, is um, I feel that nutrition is very important. Um, When Ed was first diagnosed, because of the aggressive nature and because of how his scans showed, um, they gave him maybe up to five years to live, and he actually said six and a half. And I partly say that is because him, you know, engage socially active as much as possible. One thing that's important. And I love to cook him check out my about night on my post about food. And um but I and he has a metabolism of a high school teenager and so he could eat a lot of food and he enjoyed eating and but I cooked very healthy and he was very interested Christmas are important, and also physical activity. Now, he loves to go on walks, and we were routinely going walks around the neighborhood and certain towns and things like that. But we live in South Dakota, so exercise at a fitness facility, and uh, we would go um, go mall walking. And he thought that was so interesting, walking around the mall and just actually, you know, just getting out of the house and walking around. And we see different people there too. So whatever to keep your person physically active and make just a walk around the block if that's all they, you know, can do or want to do. Um, but I think all those things are just important to keep socially active, to you know, engage in um, good nutrition, also physical activity. Mm-hmm. We're having a, a little bit of a bad connection. I don't know if you're on a cell phone or or what, um, or if you have pockets, or, or maybe it's blog talk too. Um, but just to let you know, it, it is going in and out just to hear there. And I don't know if you're experiencing that at your end or not. Um, Lisa, but um, that is something I don't have a whole lot of control over. I, I agree. I think nutrition, exercise, all of those things are, are wonderful, wonderful pieces to to be part of as well. Um, what did you feel you did as a caregiver um, that would be useful for other care partners and, and family members out there to know? Well, I didn't know what I didn't know, for one thing. Um, um, Ain't that the truth, yeah. <laughs> um, when Ed was diagnosed, um, you know, I felt like I was at the bottom of a well trying to climb out because I didn't I didn't know which way I was supposed to be going. So I thought, well, you know what, I'm I'm pretty smart. I'm educated. I can I got resources. I'm going to figure this out. So. Thankfully, uh, a mutual friend of ours um, met with us and um, gave me a chore list. I thought, what? I need a chore list? I've got a lot to do already. <laughs> and it was a chore list. I know. 
Um, it's a tour list of about 15 tasks, and some were, you know, safety-oriented. Um, however, the very first thing on the task list for me was take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and raised my eyebrows and said, well, of course, like, of course I would take care of myself. But, you know, as a caregiver, that's something you can easily overlook. So I went through the rest of the task, reading the task list about, you know, getting alarms on the doors and putting a tracker on, on the phone or getting the ID bracelet, all that kind of stuff. And then um, item number 15 on the task list was also take care of yourself. And I thought, you know what, those, those were some wise, wise words. And, um, you know, it, it's something that I didn't even realize the kind of um, – commitment it took as a caregiver. Um, Ed stayed home with me, um, and, and I worked. Um, and COVID, you know, March of 2020, my office sent us to work from home, which to me that was, um, you know, a godsend because I didn't even realize, you know, what was lying ahead in the next, you know, year and a half of my life. But just to have, um, to just to be home, working from home, he didn't come and bother me while I was working, but it was just I had less anxiety worrying about what could be happened because he was pretty fully functioning um, until um, June of, of this year, or June of, I'm sorry, June of 21. Um, I fell off uh, an eight-foot ladder and uh, skid across the garage floor and uh, broke my hip and had to have a total hip replacement. Oh, my so, goodness. Yeah, that was that leads into my next point. Um, so there I am, incapacitated, and Ed is home with me, but he's the only one. No one can hear us. No one can see us. I have the garage door shut. I had to get over to my phone. This is the short version. And I had to get somebody to the house to take care of him before I called the ambulance for me. And um, so I asked him for help, and he he was he didn't understand the situation he says no and he then he took off so anyways i got to my third person on my list and got a neighbor to come over and um found, you know took care of him he was just out in the garden pulling weeds and stuff and, and then the ambulance came but that that day a lot of things happened it was a huge reality check because um my surgeon said no, you can't go back home and take care of him because you need and I told listen, it was the first thing on that list, isn't it? And uh, so between that, on a Thursday, and it was determined that Ed would have to go into a memory care facility, and he had a, a sister, my two sisters, and our two sons checking in or staying with him or taking care of him, and it was from a, until that Saturday, one of our sons came in the hospital and said, Mom, you can't do this anymore. It takes five of us to take care of him. I said, oh, you just don't know his routine. And he's like, no, you can't do this anymore. And mm -hmm. maybe it would be a good idea to stayed in memory care, you know, give you a break and, and whatever. And then the second son came on, came the next day and gave me the same exact speech. So, you know, the tough love from your kids is wonderful. And um, it was a good reality check that I didn't even realize everything that I was doing. It was almost like I was in a robotic motion. So as a caregiver, you need to take a step back and, and take a look at what you're actually doing and not doing. Um, I actually think early on, another recommendation from a friend is to find something that inspires you and gives you an escape. Um, like we mentioned, there's no cure for this disease or this diagnosis. And um, I've always been interested in photography, so I um, got back into my landscape photography and have um, reignited my interest in that, and every once in a while I just go off and take some sunset pictures or whatever, and this was far easier during the early time of Ed's diagnosis when I could leave him alone, and I have now um, created a line of inspirational cards, um, five by sevens and three by fives. I don't them. I just use them as my currency uh, to help people and they help me. Like if I have a neighbor that helps me with something or, or whatever, it's just kind of one of those, those things that you do for people or they make nice well. But you need to find something for an outlet, something to re-energize yourself and give yourself a little break from your, your new normal. 
Um, the other thing I would like caregivers to know is that, you know, even though this disease has been in the news a lot more recently, as you mentioned, um, people would often, as they do, um, say, oh, let me know if you need anything, and they're on their way. Well, I didn't know what I didn't know. And we, so like Midwesterners, we have difficulty asking for help. So if you do know someone with the disease, um, whether it's your friend, neighbor, coworker, whatever, please reach out to their caregivers because they need you. They don't know they need you, but they need you. Even if you as a friend go over and volunteer to come over to the house for a few hours and just sit with the loved one, the affected person, so that the caregiver can go get her hair done or go to lunch with a friend or run or get some other things done um, uninterrupted, um, that would have been very helpful. Um, or even, even though the person with dementia has different abilities, um, even if the person, someone would come, you know, if someone would have come and picked up Ed and taken him for a ride out in the country, you know, by the old farm ground or around the lake or just a different, you know, scene. And of course, you know, I did have to help him in and out of the vehicle and help him with his seatbelt and things like that. But to have him have a break and be around someone that that he's familiar with, but to give the caregiver a break. Yeah, those are all really good points. Um, I had someone uh, just uh, email me and, and said uh, when you were talking about, you know, taking care of yourself when you fell off the ladder and, and you, you know, you look at the world very differently. I mean, here you can't even call an ambulance until you have someone to, to care for him. Um, nobody wants to be in that position <laughs> to have to hold off on on care and then having people that understand, you know, what his needs are. And they had just said it took them um, to truly understand that until they had a heart attack, uh, you know, because they thought they were taking care of themselves. They thought they did have everything handled until a crisis happened. And when you're not able to do that yourself, um, you really do have to figure out a plan for that. And so that's a that's a big, big awakening. I loved when you talked about um, – get something that inspires you because you still have to be connected to life and, and you still have to find ways to fill, fill your heart and feel purposeful and feel calm and, and joyful. Um, I love that you're doing the cards. I'd actually love to see you, um, you know, do those on SD or something like that where they could be sold. I think we need more kind of caregiver cards and inspirational cards for people, even if they're just blank. Um, you know, that support the cause and were developed because, you know, of the of the diagnosis of, of living in this world and knowing how important it is. Because even just seeing somebody's photos or artwork or whatever it might be, um, their creativity, I think, brings calm to people. And I, I think that that's all easily um, shareable, you know, that, that emotion of calm and gratefulness and beauty. And then um, when you talked about, you know, really tapping into people and in teaching people that, you know, don't go by what the, the care partner says, that I've got it handled, because most people feel that's what they're supposed to say. Most people feel they're being judged by other people if they don't have it handled. And it really is a lot of those little things mean so much. Like you said, to go get your hair done or take a nap or run errands or um, have a cup of coffee uh, um, and taking them for a, a drive. My mom used to love to go for a drive. And, but again, if people don't understand the disease and, you know, who's getting into the car with them and how to respond, that may feel like too big of an ask for them if they haven't experienced that. Um, so uh, there's just so much education. That, that needs to be done. Now, were you involved with support groups at all? And if so, what are your thoughts on on those and what kind of uh, support groups were, were you involved with, if, if you were? 
Yeah, I, I am involved in a couple support groups. Before we talk about that, I just did want to circle back um, to my cards. They are blank on the inside, and I just I have photography on the front, and then photography on the back, and then inspirational things on the back. So people can actually use them for, you know, things or, or you know, some type of care letter or whatever. So they're very multifaceted. You'll probably be getting some. <laughs> Wonderful. It's it's stuff like that I would love to see um put on dementia map for people to go. And um I because I just I just think all of that stuff is so important. It just gives people hope. Plus it gives people ideas of what they could do creatively and maybe they're not a photographer, maybe they like to draw, maybe they like to dance, maybe they there's so many different things, but it's endless what can be brought into this arena to help people. It's just endless. And I I did want to just touch base on the email you brought up from the other person, the caregiver with the with the other catastrophic incident. Um people get your legal docs in order. Um thankfully, um right as soon as Ed was diagnosed, we updated our will and our uh, power of attorney and our power of attorney for health care for both of us and all that and um, Ed, you know, was still able to sign and everything early on, so we had this all organized, and sooner the better. Um, when when I was, you know, in the hospital with a broken hip, and our sons had to, um, you know, assign him into memory care. I mean, they had that responsibility. I We had Ed's power of attorney and health care power of attorney listed so that it was me or either one of the sons individually or together could act on his behalf, you know, financially or with the, um, you know, the healthcare power of attorney, because had we not had it worded that way, I don't know that they would have been able to sign him in. Mm-hmm. And so that, that was how we had all that worded. Plus I had mine worded just so that my sons are in charge of me because of Ed's diminished capacity and, and limited cognitive ability um, and it was very, very hard to exclude him, but for him to make any decisions for me, I, I didn't think that would have been in my best interest considering his decline, and we didn't know how fast that was going to be happening. So I did actually have all that switched over to, so that our sons were in charge of my information. And, you know, you need to you need to think what if. What if you are the one, the caregiver, that's, you know, temporarily incapacitated or has some type of issue Somebody needs to be in charge. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And the other thing that I think is important too is, you know, a lot of a lot of organizations give these cards out where, you know, um, my person has dementia. Please be patient with us. But, you know, what we did in our Roseville um, dementia friendly group was we added on there um, if something would happen to me, the care partner, you need to know this is my loved one with dementia, and here's an alternative person to call. Because we can get in a car accident, have a stroke, fall off a ladder. I mean, so many different things. And same with bracelets. People say, well, the person with dementia has to have a bracelet. But again, if you're caring for somebody, you almost need a bracelet. Because if something happens to you, you need to know that they know um, someone has to care for whoever you're caring for. Um, and to look for that person. Because they could easily wander off you know, and be, be left alone and um, kind of be in that unknown space. So, yeah, the whole legalities is, is really important. So thank you um, for bringing that up. Why don't we go back to um, the groups? Because I think that, you know, support groups, I think, are, are so beneficial. Oh, they are. Um, so at first, you know, like, oh, I think I've got this handled. But there's not going to be a one group fits all for, you know, support groups. And and when I say support groups, and we're more, more people are attuned to this now because of COVID and a lot of things being done virtually anyway. But, you know, some groups meet in person. Some are online support groups. You know, your website is just a huge treasure trove of information um, that applies to people with dementia or not, and just a whole, you know, so there's all kinds of resources out for everybody. Um, so I would say, you know, if you do have a support group or are interested in going to a support group, try it out. And if it doesn't work for you this week, maybe, or this month, maybe next month, the, the topic will, you know, suit your needs a little bit better. But, you know, at first I was 
kind of frustrated because um, normally you think of the Alzheimer, the support groups with people being, you know, in their 70s or 80s or somebody talking about their aunt in their 90s or, you know, their uncle or something like that. And, and I'm sitting there, you know, in my 50s and my husband also, and to have, you know, we're in our working stages of life, we haven't been able to enjoy retirement and things like that. And it's a whole different story when that was our situation. So I had, I found it a little bit frustrating at first until you start looking at, you know, the, the big picture or even learning certain details that are helpful. But ironically, some good friends of ours in town here had another set of friends that lived about two hours from here. And ironically, the husband had been diagnosed with the same uh, type of illness as Ed. So... Ed was 51 and, and Ken was 60, and so I met his wife, and we had been on the same parallel path um, for six and a half years, and um, Ken would have a bad day, Ed would have a bad day. We learned how the full moons affected them, and so <laughs> yep. Sandy, uh, yes, I didn't know that was a thing, but so Ken's wife Sandy and I have become, you know, really good friends and great supports for each other, and sometimes probably blew up our phones texting with with issues and how does you know has this happened before how how does this work out because i felt we were more similar in our stage of life you know working adults empty nesters and then having our husband's you know careers cut short due to this seat so she was very helpful to me throughout this whole process um Tragically, Ken also passed away from Alzheimer's. Um, this would have been October of 21, and Ed passed away six weeks after him. So they, when I say they truly had a parallel path, they really, really did. And to have somebody in my life that was that helped me on this journey, she's just been wonderful. Um, but I have been going. Um, another friend had a um, lost his spouse in a tragic incident and told me about this grief support group um, at a local church. So I started going to that, oh, a couple weeks ago. Um, however, I found that most of, most of it was pertaining to, you know, the initial stages of grief. But you have to realize with, with dementia and all its forms, when I say dementia, I mean, you know, early onset, Alzheimer's, we by dementia, all the different parts that entails, um, is that, with that type of diagnosis, you are grieving for years. You know, with my husband for six and a half years, I felt that I started the grieving process the minute we got the first diagnosis, even though I didn't know that that was grieving. But now that I have it categorized in this book I have now from, you know, the grief support group, but I'm already, you know, to the point where um, he was so, had so much suffering towards the end there that he, he was not enjoying life. And it was just sad to see such a vibrant man um, taken from us so soon. And, mm -hmm. you know, to move on to the acceptance of, or to have that true love in your life and to have him now not suffering, that that's something that, you know, I just, he was really a good one. He was a good one. Oh, well, and you're lucky to find that because not everybody does. I, you know, I love the um, realm that you gave us, you know, like the Alzheimer's Association. And there's both um, programs for the, the care partner. There are some combined ones. There are programs for people with just dementia as well. Um, some of the dementia-friendly um, organizations and communities um, have different groups, but a, a lot of those have kind of shut down just because of COVID, and most of them are already working in healthcare, and so they haven't been able to do as much work. Um, the memory cafes, I'll mention those. I'm a big believer in those. That's for people with dementia um, and their care partners, and those are all different, too. There's over like a thousand of them now, and you can go to um, memory cafe directories to, to learn a little bit more information about those. The ones that I do um, we don't have any programs. So my um, my peeps said, nope, we just want to talk. We want to build community. We want to have peers. Um, and so, you know, they just kind of talk about what they, we meet every two weeks. Um, what happened in the last two weeks? If the cat went to the vet, if they went to a, a grandchild's recital, if somebody got sick, 
um, we, we heard it all. Remodeling, I mean, um, falls, you name it. Um, everything was open, and then people pose questions and bring resources and just really share very intimately on those. But there are some that have programs that might be music. There are some that teach you tech stuff. I mean, it's it's endless. And then the grief support groups, I think, are really important um, as well. Um, most of those are like eight weeks um, <clears throat> here in our Roseville uh, dementia-friendly community here. We started something that was different called the Dementia um, Caregiver Reentry Program. And it was it, it was basically developed kind of like a memory cafe where it's a little free-flowing because we had heard from people. They said, well, what do I do after my eight weeks of grief support? Now, now I'm now I'm on my own again, and I'm I'm still not feeling comfortable um, with this whole process. So um, this was for people to just kind of process things. You know, none of us are psychologists or social workers, but it's just people getting together, talking about their experience. You know, do they stay in the same house? You know, what do they do now? Closing up all the legal things that have to be figuring out who they are and what they like and what to do with their time. Um, you know, it has been real interesting. So that's something that we're trying to share to, to get more people up and running and starting that. Cause I think that that's a huge, a huge need. Um, and then I just want to give a, a plug for Pauline Boss. She uh, has written the book ambiguous loss, but in addition, she has one loving someone with dementia talking about loss, and now this new one uh, that just came out last year, The Myth of Closure. Because like you said, you start grieving, and so does your person with dementia. You start the grieving process as soon as you get that diagnosis because everything is going to change, even though there can be some celebration that at least you have an answer of what's going on. But most people kind of go into that loss mode and, and the big changes that are happening um, you know, within their life. And, and it doesn't go away. Every day is a little bit different and you don't always know what's going to trigger that loss either. And I would imagine for you, you're going to be in your first year. And so every holiday, or it might just be certain sunsets or sunrises that could be a trigger or, you know, a picture, um, a town that brings back memories, all of those things can be really overwhelming and get you bursting into tears. And sometimes you don't even know why, but I think it's healthy, you know, to feel the emotion and process that, you know, like you said, it's not going to go away. It's just, it's going to get different, um, you know, over time. Right. <clears throat> and you had mentioned about, um, you know, there's so many resources out there and, you know, there's no one size fits all for anybody. But, you know, when the person, when Ed was diagnosed with, with dementia, with early onset Alzheimer's, you know, he, he was given a care plan as far as, okay, we're going to go to the neuropsychologist. We're going to go to the male. We're going to do this. So there was a care plan for the affected individual. However, there is not a, care plan for the caregiver. There's not a prescription for you need to just stop, hit the pause button, investigate the sources available because there's just so much out there and I was trying to learn about the disease and trying to work and trying to take care of my husband and trying to take care of me and there was you just almost needed a pause button to say wait a minute I need to get a handle on all of this figure out a prescription for my own care plan what I need to do to help him better and to help you know those around us and help family members understand it too you know he has four siblings and extended family and um, I have, you know, there's this, we have a huge network, but it just, just has to figure out how to explain it to everybody and what you need from them or what, what is acceptable. But just to take that, that time to try and analyze and, and try and take care of things. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is complicated. And it, it, I, I found one of the, the best modes that, uh, and I've heard this from so many people, and I don't know if you got involved with this, but um, just groups on Facebook. There's so many different groups on Facebook and a lot of people don't partake in the conversation. They're kind of our voyeurs <laughs> and they, 
they kind of soak up all the information, but they get a feel for the group, you know, before they even post. Um, and that's perfectly fine. Others jump right in. And same with a, with a support group. You know, once you sign up, you're not stuck. You know, you, you are in control and you need to make sure it's a good fit for you. So I know when we started the memory cafes, we were trying to get other support groups to refer people into this concept because it was really different when we started and they didn't want to. And they said, well, those are our people. And I'm like, none of them are our people. We're all here trying to support them. And my philosophy is they've got a right to choose. And so we would get people in the memory cafe that would drive an hour just to get to us. And then they wanted to see if they could start one up closer to where they lived. And I'm like, absolutely. I'll help you do that. And people were like shocked. Why would you do that? And I'm like, because it's the right thing to do. And we'll never have enough. And they should all be different because every group has a different personality. And and I think that that's one of the problems I know I saw when I was um, when I was dealing with this with my mom. Um, well, and part of the problem was me thinking that, well, you know, I I teach on this stuff, you know, I don't really need this. And then I ended up going to hear somebody talk, and I thought somebody posed a question of what do I miss, and I just broke down, and it was like I miss a hug. I just miss a hug. My mom can't hug me anymore. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I need this. Just like everyone else needs this. You know, we need to open up. We need to feel. We need to talk about these things because they're important to us. And they should be important. Um, And, you know, the more we learn, the more we can share with other people, you know, and spreading that knowledge. And and I think so often people think, well, I I don't know enough, you know, to teach anybody else. And I'm like, you know what? I don't either, but I'm still talking because I know Uh more than somebody else. And I know a lot less in another area than someone else. And that's perfectly fine, but we need to have these comfortable conversations where we're inclusive and everybody brings in value and different perspectives. Um, Because like you said, this isn't a one size fits all. It's constantly changing and, and there's so many different types of dementias, and some have multiple, you know, types of dementias over time, or the diagnosis changes. I mean, it's it's complicated. It's fluid, and we need to be that as a community. So I really appreciate you taking the time, you know, with us today to share your story and and give out just some great information, you know, for people to hear and take in, um, understanding, you know, what they're going through is normal. You know, if, if they're feeling upset or sad or depressed, it's okay. But there will be ways to find those moments of joy. There, there will be a way to kind of grab your life back. And, and hopefully you don't give it all over to the disease. I know I kind of did. Um, and uh, it was girlfriends that encouraged me to come have coffee with them once a week that I kept refusing to do because I was too busy, and then I finally did, and I realized, oh, my gosh, I, I didn't know my soul was so empty, and and, and that changed me overnight, thinking, yeah. you know, cause you, can't, you can't care as well if you're not filled. And so, again, you've given us such great information for people to, get their souls filled and to, to explore um, and, and check things out. So we have about a minute left. Anything else you'd like to say to the audience, Lisa? Um, Medicare was a challenge. So um, when people are, you know, Ed's age, he was below 65. So he was eligible for SSDI, Social Security Disability. And that's a whole nother navigate but I'm glad I had you know the resources I did to try to call that out but you know he worked for a great company that had good benefits so we were able to you know read the fine print in your policies people because there's some great things that you could be eligible for that you were unaware of exactly <laughs> exactly and there are people like the medicare maven and different things that can that can help you out there but you know even just getting a good elder law attorney can uh, can be just 
um, life-changing. So again, thank you to our audience. I want to thank you for listening. Please like, click, and share. There's no better way to help people out than to share knowledge and inspire them through someone else's story. And maybe, just maybe, you could be our next guest. And don't also forget to check out Dementia Map. There's lots of great resources out there, and we are adding more every So have a wonderful week, everyone, and God bless. Bye now. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier.